नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट सो माय गेस्ट टुडे इज पॉल एंटोनोपोलस एंड वी आर गोइंग टू टॉक अबाउट ग्रीक आइडेंटिटी एंड इट्स वेरियस अवतार्स पॉल थैंक्स अ लॉट फॉर कमिंग थैंक यू सो मच फॉर हैविंग मी ऑन कुशल मेहरा एंड यू प्रोनाउंस माय समवट डिफिकल्ट नेम परफेक्टली सो वंस अगेन थैंक यू फॉर दैट एज़ वेल I I was so stressed about getting your name wrong and that that's why I had that the first thing I did when when we came off like, offline you came offline I was like tell me how to get your name right so yeah that's it for the full uh, for for full disclosure I was really worried about that but Paul this is your first time on the podcast so I would request you to tell everybody who's going to be listening to this or who's watching this on YouTube a little bit about yourself so they get familiar with you and your work sure um So you can probably tell from my accent that I was born in Australia. However, I was born to Greek parents and I'm currently living in Athens. Uh currently I'm working for Greek City Times which is one of the largest um media portals in the English language related to Greek news. However, I'm also doing my PhD at the moment and that's on um 21st multipolarity. So I'll look at uh how Greece balances its relationship today with the USA, China, uh India, Russia and and other important regional powers such as Turkey and Iran and others and just effectively how we should balance our relationships which we currently do not have and we'll, we'll talk in detail why why we've arrived at this current situation all right paul so if i was to maybe let's start with this let's start by addressing the the title of the podcast itself because uh, i i decided to call it greek identity and its various avatars now now if somebody was to say uh, i'm coming from a place of complete ignorance let's let's assume and they come to you uh and say paul what is it about being greek and what are the various multiple facets of greek identity let's let's begin there Sure and as the expected answer would be of course it's never such a simple answer it's quite complicated because if you're asked if you were to ask most Greeks today um how they feel about themselves or how they identify identify themselves they'll probably say we're a western liberal european country um although we are geographically located in the southeastern corner of europe and you know so why is it that we have adopted such a western liberal economy um society culture etc cetera, etc cetera? it's this is a little bit of a complicated answer and it basically stems back to the ottoman empire and greeks for the most part were under ottoman turkish occupation since 1453 some other greeks lived a bit beforehand some a little bit afterwards but we generally put the date at 1453 with the fall of constantinople and under 400 years of ottoman turkish occupation a, a very strong and thriving greek diaspora community emerged in the western countries and russia as well and many of these were in 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 some of the most culturally thriving uh, areas of europe such as the city states of italy france the uk and also tsarist russia and generally speaking greeks as they usually do even today when they go into the diaspora they became quite in quite successful and what emerged eventually was a secret society kind of based in like to the freemasons called the friendly society as as we call them in english and the goal of the friendly society 
of these wealthy diaspora Greeks, you know, whether they were in Italy or France or the UK, it wasn't called the UK um, in the 17 and 1800s, of course, in Britain, was the liberation of the Greek people from the Ottoman Empire. And amongst this, they created a lot of cultural influence. So we see many amazing um, uh, photos of classical Greece. And when we talk about classical Greece, we're talking about, you know, the, the, the golden age of Athens in about, you know, the three, four, five hundred uh, before, three, four hundred, five, four, five hundred years before Christ. And they were strongly influenced. The Renaissance had strong ancient Greek influence. Um, so there was this huge romanticism of, of what a Greek was um, uh, during this period, you know, with, with Leonardo da Vinci and, and all these other famous artists doing their artworks inspired uh, many times by ancient Greek uh, philosophy, uh, mythology and, and gods and, and, and heroes such as Hercules. And by the time we come to 1821, when the Friendly Society was ready to launch their so-called Greek revolution against the Ottoman Empire, which did eventually come to Greece's independence 10 years later, was this very um, exaggerated and romanticized image of what a Greek was, at least in Western eyes. They thought that we were these ancient, somewhat ancient Greeks that were almost naked and beautiful and blonde hair and blue-eyed and, and whatever we were. That's how they imagined us uh, at this point. However, they were a little bit disappointed to discover that the actual Greeks within Greece were actually quite peasant and quite backwards, you know, after four or five hundred years of, of the Ottoman Empire. So to, to come back in a short way around, by the time that Greece achieved this independence, there was two separate identities that had emerged. One which was a very wealthy, aristocratic, um, merchant, uh, mercantile uh, diaspora Greek who was very liberal, very Western. Most of them could speak French or English or Russian or, or many uh, often, you know, four or five languages. Um, and then we had the other Greek, the actual Greeks within the lands of, of, of within their native lands. And they were very, very different, maybe a little bit naive uh, somewhat to their ancient glories um, in that sense, because there was a lot of ignorance and, and, and a lack of education during the Ottoman period. And these two emerging identities of Western liberalism and a little bit more Eastern, a little bit quote-unquote backwards, you know, a very orientalized image um, of, of the Greeks uh, came competing. And now this continues all the way to this very day. All right. So maybe if then, then let's segue from here into a very specific uh, aspect of the Greek identity. So from what I've understood is the Greek identity is quite clearly multi-ethnic too, right? There is no one ethnicity per se that that there was a defining, uh, in, in that sense, the defining case for Greek identity. Now, if this is a multi-ethnic society, as you have uh, explained, then how come the, if, uh, what word should I use? I want to be very careful in the words I use. The pop culture image of Greek identity seems to be a very specific one. Could you could you explain the reasons for that then, as we are on the Greek identity itself? Sure. Um, it's, it's actually quite a good way to put it. So I was using words like romanticism earlier, um, you know, to talk about how the Europeans were feeling about the Greeks in the 17 and 1800s as they were going through their own renaissance. And that pop culture has uh, continued to this day. We see in Hollywood, a lot of movies about the 300 Spartans and, and 
about Hercules and, and you know, many, many mythologies and whatnot. The problem that we have is that um, by creating an imagined image of what, of what a Greek is today, it's, it's completely disconnecting us from who we really are. So, so it kind of divorces us uh, from our roots because at our very roots, a Greek, and, and I'll quote Herodotus, um, and Herodotus was one of the most renowned uh, Greek philosophers of his day. Um, Herodotus, who's known as a father of history, he says that a Greek, to be a Greek, you must have homomon, and this means shared blood or the same blood, so shared descendancy. He also says a Greek must have homogloson, speaking the same language. So we must speak the same language. This means shared sanctuaries and sacrifices. So we share the same religious sanctuaries. And then the final one is which means customs of like fashion or shared customs. So if we go to our ancient ancestors, it's a very clear, very easy definition. It's shared blood, same language, same traditions and shared religious areas. Now, this naturally continues to this day. However, of course, our religion has changed. And we, most people, are kind of ignorant that Greeks are, have a very unique religious belief system. That is Christian orthodoxy, uh, or as we like to say, the mother church, the original church of Christianity. This in itself creates problems for Greek identity as well. And this goes back to our, let's say, late ancient, early medieval period where uh, there was a huge uh, identity clash of what are Greekies? Are we Christian? Are we pagan? And, and they were fighting and clashing over which one we are. Eventually, the Christians did prevail. And this element of Christianity has held very strong to this day to, to our very identity. And the problem that we have with this is that we've got a very clear continuation of Greek paganism, Greek mythology, their influence over Christianity, and how it influences our identity today. And our Greek identity is that we're very family orientated. We're very loyal to our friends. Um, we believe in strong hospitality customs. And the problem by adopting Western liberal identity is that we start becoming divorced from our traditions, such as the, the custom of hospitality, as we become more individualized and, and, and more self-serving and, and self, uh, seeking self-preservation rather than thinking about our greater ethnos or, or our greater ethnic community. Um, so in this way... Greece is not firmly a Western liberal country today. As much as what many people outside of Greece believe we are, including in the Western European Union, sometimes Germans are very shocked when they come to Greece and discover that there's such a vast cultural uh, difference between us and, and them. And this is mostly born out of uh, naivety, as you said, a, a very, um, or as I said, a very Hollywood image of, of what a Greek person is today. Um, if we discuss who, how we identify ourselves today and how we should identify ourselves today, they're two very different things. All right, so let's let's explore this bit. So as you said, the, the the religious identity of Greek society has changed significantly. Let's say uh, 
pagan or a polytheistic identity, which was a past Greek identity. In fact, it's very interesting that if you look at it from a philosophy student's perspective, most of the Greek philosophers were not Christians. Most of them were, or at least the known ones in ancient Greek philosophers, they were all pagans or pagan adjacent or polytheists or, or whatever we want to call them. Now, in that sense, um, this journey from polytheism to, let's say, Orthodox Christianity, how does Greek society itself, like the people who live there, deal with this reality? Is this reality spoken about that we used to be something, then Christianity came and our ancient identity has gone? Or is there any kind of attempt at revivalism to get back those old identities, uh, uh, to rekindle those those old traditions or something of that sort in, in inside that landmass? That's quite a phenomenal question. And it's, it's, it's a very, very deep one um, because there are actually many similarities or comparisons that we can make about the Christianization of Greece and the Indian experience of, of Christianity. So I would say some of the fundamental differences is that Christianity arrived in India as a um, conquering foreign religion. In, to the Greek people, however, it's a little bit different because it was the Greeks themselves who began adopting uh, Christianity. It wasn't that the sword first came and then forced uh, a new religion on, onto the Greek people. But it was something that, that was kind of brought um, and became popularised amongst the peasantry and then slowly moved out throughout the classes. So it was more a case of uh, the Greeks themselves beginning to uh, adopt Christianity. And then once they became a sizable um, community, then we begin to see this inter-Greek uh, clashes between the polytheists and, 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 and the Christians. So it wasn't something that, that arrived such as um, the arrival of Islam to the Greek people with, with the Ottomans and, and earlier Turkic tribes and, and, and the earlier um, Arabs. Um, so it wasn't in that sense where it came conquering as a, foreign, as, as a foreign ideology from a foreign empire. It was something that happened organically within the Greek people. So I can understand from the Indian perspective why their uh, views of Christianity is going to be very different from a Greek person. Um, in that sense, undoubtedly, when the Christians did gain enough power some hundreds of years after they first um, began their movement, they did become violent. They converted many temples into churches. They destroyed many sanctuaries. They forced conversions by the sword, etc., etc. But that is not the roots of Christianity for the Greek people. That was a development a little bit later on. And this... Uh, this eventually even changed um, the name of the Greek people. So after this, this Christianization of the Greek people, we were no longer called Hellenes, as we call ourselves in the Greek language. Um, we became known as Romans in, in English, and the, or Eastern Romans, Byzantines, Eastern Romans. And a Hellene or a Greek from that point on became a polytheist. And by, by the middle of the Middle Ages, they, they were no longer quite um, prominent. There were, there were so few in numbers. So a Hellene or a Greek actually became a negative term in the, in the, Medi, in, in, in the Middle Ages uh, um, for the Greek people. It, it was uh, almost punishable with death 
um, at, at some periods of time um, to, to not be a Christian or, or, or to follow the old gods as, as it was. So this, this, this extremism of, of, of the dominance of Christianity over the polytheists or, or their, their, their conquest over the polytheists, it's been something that has consumed Greek identity to this very day. Um, and even to this very day, Greeks in Turkey, as one example, are called Romans even to this very day in the Turkish language. Um, they're not called Fascinating. Um, and in, in, in this way, it's, it, it continues to this very day that, that um, there is not so much of a revivalism going on, but there's more of an acceptance of the influence that Greek philosophy had on, on the early church and in the, in the Christian Orthodox Church. So it is in my argument that effectively the Christian Orthodox Church is, is in some way a continuation of the polytheistic um, religion. And why do I say this? Um, Stoicism, as one uh, branch of philosophy, is fundamental to the Christian religion, as is um, Platonism. Without Stoicism and Platonism, there effectively is no Christianity as we know it today. And when we begin to remove Greek philosophy from Christianity, um, that's when we start to see the more extremist sides of Christianity. So I'll, I'll use the example of the Protestant church. The Protestant church is very book-focused, very Bible-focused, without so much spirit and tradition and philosophy. They kind of reject all that, and they just focused um, on the Bible very, very literally. And this is what, why you can see some forms of extremism coming from the Protestant churches, um, uh, such as their rhetoric towards non-Christians, um, their rhetoric towards homosexuals or, or something like that. And it's not, of course, as an example, homosexuality is rejected by Christianity, but there's not the venom behind it in denouncing or targeting or hurting someone who might be homosexual, um, you know, as strongly as a Protestant would compared to an Orthodox uh, Christian. Um, in 2006, Pope Benedict of the Catholic Church also announced a de-Hellenization of the Catholic Church, you know, the removal of Greek philosophy from the Catholic Church. And what he argued in 2006, the then Catholic uh, Pope Benedict, was that once you remove um, essentially Christianity in the Catholic and the Orthodox Church today is essentially a Hellenized religion, to quote him. Um, so from, the, from his view, the former Pope's view, uh, uh, Christianity is actually a Hellenized religion. So there's more of an acceptance of this fact that, that, that Greek philosophy and Greek mythology and Greek, ancient Greek rituals have had a huge influence on Christian orthodoxy that, that we still practice to this day. Yeah, because if you look at the scholastic philosophy, whether it's, you know, I'll just use the example of Thomas Aquinas in that sense, all the scholastic scholars or, or any other in that sense that have played a fundamental role in shaping uh, Christianity and a lot of principles of Christianity. I mean, it's quite clear that the Greek philosophy and the influence of Greek philosophy uh, on the nature of reality itself, how reality forms a uh, uh, and and you rightful, rightly say that Platonism especially has had a humongous influence. And in fact, um, pardon me, I, I'm very bad with names, but I read this beautiful book 
that was recommended to me by a close friend of mine and it was uh, an interesting book because it deals with a lot of uh, influence on western philosophy uh, uh, and it talks about uh, platon and all a very specific time period in the history of the west it was called radical platonism in byzantium and uh, uh-huh. it, it talks about uh, the influences of you know on liberalism uh, and what happens in liberalism and how actually most of those things that liberalism talks about and uh, even the differentiation of the secular space and many other things you can actually root them and trace them right back to the greek ideas of the ancient greek ideas and how those ancient greek ideas kept on seeping through if i was to say through the cracks or the walls that were tried to be created to make sure that they don't seep in but they they no matter what they kept on seeping in they kept on seeping in and in fact um, the modern western identity in a very interesting way also uh, that book shows in 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 a beautiful way how it has a huge greek influence now i want to talk about something which is maybe uh, it might be interesting for everybody you know who's because so let's talk about the eurasian connections now so and and let's maybe focus a little bit very specifically on the eurasian connections here so maybe you know you can talk talk about that a little bit because i think at least my viewers would be you know very keen on knowing that sure it's um as i discussed before the modern greek state did not come into existence until 1830 and with the war of independence against the ottoman turks beginning in 1821 and the territories that were liberated um in this war is only about a third of the size of greece today it was pretty much reduced to a few islands the area of athens um and the southern peninsula of the greek mainland so a very small territory within the european uh, continent and it's because we've been territorially reduced um as a nation state within europe and the fact that a lot of our liberation was thanks to the diaspora greeks from western europe that that we've that we've become very westernized in our identity in the way that we look at at ourselves and it's such a shame because this identity has limited Greece's geopolitics to this day so traditionally we've always been a very pro america uh, country extremely pro us so whether that was um, after world war 2 um whether it was in the context of the cold war um after the cold war we've always been heavily aligned uh to western europe and the usa and what that has meant is that unfortunately we have not fostered or we very limited our relationships with the east including our nearby countries such as syria which is you know within the same eastern mediterranean region that greece is in we've even haven't managed to foster close relations with even nearby neighbors let alone um more further off countries such as india and this is because as i said we've been very limited with our modern identity which has meant that we've had a very oriental view of the east as being backwards it's something that we no longer want to be a part of because it's associated with the ottoman empire this is a huge deficiency in our own um in our own identity and the way that we perceive ourselves considering that in the ancient times we had greek colonies that that extended all the way to bactria right up to the borders of of today's uh jammu and kashmir and 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 punjab uh 
even after Alexander the Great, the Eastern Romans, uh, the, the territory of the Eastern Romans, and uh, held you know much much of it was 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 in Anatolia um, and and in in the Middle East or areas of the Middle East where there was huge Greek communities. We also have to remember that up until 1923, there were millions, up to three million Greeks that lived in today's Turkey and up to a million of them were exterminated in genocide and the other two to three million or up to another two million were um, relocated to Greece during the 1923 population exchange of Christians and Muslims between Greece and Turkey. So we've got a very, very rich and historical connection to the East, no matter whether we want to go back to the Bronze Age whether we want to go to the classical Athenians, whether we want to go to Alexander the Great, whether we want to go to the Romans and the Eastern Romans. Um, and even through the Ottoman occupation, there was millions and millions of Greeks living in, in West Asia. Um, so this, this, this uh, us being contained into a very Western liberal identity has meant that we've never prioritised building relationships with countries to our East, only with our West. And this has affected Greece economically, uh, geopolitically, militarily, you know, in every single way possible. Being disconnected from our east is effectively cutting the, uh, the, the, the heart of a Greek in half, as we're essentially and arguably the first Eurasian civilization in, in, in history. Um, our colony is expanded from the European continent to North Africa, to, to, to South and West Asia, and Central Asia as well. Um, so to, to be completely divorced from this has been devastating for us. Up until last year, um, the foreign ministers of Greece and India had not met each other, and if I'm not mistaken, in 18 years, something about close to two decades, the foreign ministers of, of our two countries. And I would argue this is a historical injustice, a modern historical injustice, that it's taken so long, you know, really only up until the middle of 2020 that we've decided that relations between India and Pakistan is essential. It is absolutely essential. And, of course, and I'm moving a little bit on, so, so please stop me if, if, if I'm rambling on to No, 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 side. please go ahead. Please go ahead. Please go ahead. Please go ahead. Okay. This, this goes into the very strong bonds that Turkey and Pakistan have with each other. For me personally, I find it very um, disappointing that Turkey and Pakistan have maintained very close ties for 50, 60, 70 years, ever since uh, Pakistan emerged as, as an independent state um, after partition. And Ali Jinnah actually found great inspiration um, for how he wanted Pakistan to be from Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founding father of Turkey, who was also the perpetrator of the Armenian, Greek, and Assyrian genocide uh, during the 1910s and early 1920s. So there's a lot of um, connections between the modern states of Pakistan and Turkey, and that's why today they're, they're very politically, militarily, economically are close to each other. They're, they're essentially allies. Uh, with Azerbaijan um, acting as a third party to, to this emerging alliance. It seems very natural that Greece and India should have uh, already have an alliance, and that shouldn't be a reaction to Turkey and Pakistan, um, although it, it, it definitely makes it more crucial. 
uh, it doesn't make it, um, it shouldn't be a reaction to that because our historical bonds are far deeper, far historical, far more civilizational than what their conquering medieval backwards ideology can ever be, which is effectively what unifies them, neo-Ottomanism and neo-Mughalism. And going back to my original point, it's because of Greece's, uh, the Greek people being locked into a Western uh, liberal identity that we've been divorced from the East for, from, from the East for so long, which is finally beginning to change especially in the context of Greek and Indian relations. You know, I, let's let's dig a little deeper in this. So Greek relations with India, I think the biggest uh, connections between, you know, Greek, uh, Greek, uh, Greek identity and Indian identity, honestly, is, um, and I know uh, uh, you, you're not that keen on philosophy, but I'm just trying to bridge it over here. It's, in fact, I, I had to take it out, uh, this book, especially for our chat today, because this is the best book. If you want to understand Greek and Indian relations, it is The Shape of Ancient Thought, Comparative Studies in Greek and Indian Philosophies by Thomas Machiavelli. And I can actually relate to it if if somebody was doing a very serious analysis uh, of Greek philosophy and Indian philosophy. And this book has beautifully explained this, how monism in Greek thought is actually deeply influenced by Indian Upanishadic thought, the Upanishads, and how this thought travels from India to Greece and how it then is taken further by the Greeks in their own unique way, you know, whether it's uh, Iliatic monism of Parmenides. And and if you read uh, Advaita and you read Parmenides and you'd be like, hang on, how are they different? And you, you'd actually start asking yourself questions. And luckily, you know, I had the I had the uh, you know I had the good fortune of reading both Western and Eastern Indian philosophy, and uh, and in the case of how the Greeks influenced India, just one example is you know astrology. For for example, there is a particular book in Sanskrit in India, which is called Yavana Jataka. Now, what does Yavana mean? It literally means Greek. So it it shows how there's this thing that the Greeks got to India, and how the Indians actually absorb it, digest it in their own way, and then they, they represent it in their own unique ways. Now, there was some um, uh, place, you know, some Vedic references to astrology before that too. But the most serious development of astrology in India was actually gotten by the Greeks in India and how Indians actually took up took up to it and they're like all right show me what you got uh, this seems interesting now i'm not nor am i endorsing astrology nor am i dissing astrology i'm just stating you know historical connection that has happened between india and greece in that sense but if 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 i was to let's say paul you and i are supposed to start this thing now you know you are and, and i are both you know in 2022 you're from a greek background i'm from an indian hindu background in that sense and if we were to rekindle these things so in in your view where do we start where could be our starting point then it's 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 quite interesting because greeks and indians yes we can meet each other we can talk about how um king uh king porus and alexander the great had a battle uh, became friends afterwards and we had another wonderful civilizational exchange and we can pat ourselves on the back and that's pretty much it. But as you said, what does that mean today? What does that show today in our relations? You know, so what if we did this two 2,000 years ago? 
Um, and this is why I say that that it's so important that we must foster our, our modern uh, relations today, especially in the context of Pakistan and Turkey and, and what they're fostering together. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting that you, you pointed this, this exchange of ideas that the ancient Greeks and Indians have. And this is definitely one of the advantages that we have today, because as we come from backgrounds and cultures with, with acceptance and openness to, to foreign ideas and, 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 and foreign ideologies and, and whatnot, it allows us to, to progress in, in many scientific fields, economic fields and whatnot. And more importantly, what it allows us to do is create a, a historical justification for our nation states today, why we need to preserve them, why we need to preserve our cultures and traditions and the type of threats that our countries are facing today. Importantly, I can gladly say that soon Air India will start direct flights between New Delhi and Athens. So that's a very minor, not a minor update, it's a very major update actually, but it's just small little gestures like that that can improve relations. Uh, we're starting to have more academic exchanges. So I know that JNU later this year will most likely be hosting a conference um, on Greek and Indian relations. Uh, we've seen Indian investors coming into Greece in a very serious way. The part that we're most lacking in at the moment is military cooperation. Um, and this is extremely important because I argue that we're in a very civilizational and ideological Apologies for that. Um, in an ideological and civilizational struggle against our neighbors, uh, I argue that Turkey adopts a very neo-Ottoman um, ideology, philosophy. I don't argue that. It's 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 a fact. After their invasions of northern Syria, of parts of uh, historically Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh, their occupation of Cyprus, uh, their threats of war against Greece. Um, their threats to uh, become involved in Jammu and Kashmir. They've got a very neo-Ottoman slash pan-Turkic um, project going on. It's a very syncretic um, amalgamation of, of neo-Ottoman and pan-Turkic ideology. And Pakistan, for their part, are go I would argue, are going through another deep identity crisis. You know, are they Arabs today? Are they neo-Turks today? Well, what are they? We, we, I don't know what line of um, mythology that they're, they're, they're going along with. But I would argue that it appears they're going down the path of being Turks or Neo-Mughals or, or whatever. So they found a very great affinity with, with Turkey at the moment. Historically, they've had relations, but especially now under Erdogan um, and particularly under Imran Khan and now Sharif, uh, their, their, their alliance is becoming much, much uh, consolidated, much stronger and much more determined. Only last year, in January of last year, the foreign ministers of Turkey, Pakistan and Azerbaijan, they announced collectively that they support all of their ambitions. They support each other's ambitions on Jammu and Kashmir, Cyprus and Nagorno Armenian, Nagorno, historically Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so they're, they're coming in a very serious way with much ideology behind it. And this ideology is one, as I said, of, of medieval conquering warlordism, you know, inspired by the Ottomans and the Mughals. 
thankfully, you know, we're much more advanced than than, than having to adopt a, a very backwards and conquering ideology. We've got our ancestors to, to, to begin our foundations from, and that is the very foundations that, that we must begin from. But it cannot just be in a very superficial way where we can read a few books or have a few conversations and just discuss about how our ancient achievements, you know, what, what does it mean today? How, how can we turn that into modern achievements and, and how can we use that to, to build much stronger relationships between India and, and Greece? And, you know, I think in terms of people-to-people -people exchanges, so this podcast opportunity is certainly one of them, and which is why I'm so thankful for, for being on, on your show today. Um, and then, as I said, you know, there's terms of economy. We can see there's much more uh, Indian investments coming into Greece. There's much more academic exchanges going on. We're hoping that there'll be much more collaborations in the scientific and the defence industries. Um, so right now, and I've moved very far away from what you originally asked me, but um, uh, what I would say is that the prospects of Greek and Indian relations at the moment are very, very exciting. Um, and they're heading in a very, very positive direction, despite the the tradition of, of Greece of, of, of wanting very close relationships with the West. We're finally starting to break out of that now. And we, we, we have, we're making much progress with India at the moment. So, so okay, now, now we're in the realm of contemporary politics and foreign policy. And I think it is very important to discuss this too. I, I agree with you. We should not just think about the past. We should think about the present is. Now, as far as Pakistan is concerned, I don't know how to say it. Pakistan, you know, it's it's a confused society. And I say this as someone, uh, what else do I say? I mean, I'm a Punjabi ethnically. So, I mean, if you meet a Pakistani outside India, you do tend to have certain common aspects with them as an Indian. And then they suddenly sound very different. And, and that difference is quite clearly, I don't know how to say it, is I think they just take religion too seriously beyond the point. I, I find that thing very common. Now, as far as Pakistan and Turkey is concerned, obviously there is a common religious identity that uh, at least the Pakistanis claim. But as far as Pakistani foreign policy is concerned, I always see whosoever is giving them money, they seem to be the hero of the day for Pakistan. I don't know how else to say that. I, I don't know how else to put it. But I mean, in between, there was this uh, TV series, which was a major hit in Pakistan. I forgot the Turkish TV series. I don't know what it was called. It uh, was a most likely. Yeah, I don't know what it was. It was some warrior. Yeah, it, it was that. It was yeah, and, and it was a butt of jokes in India that, okay, I guess Pakistan has finally found a new hero. And then and <laughs> and then they, they then they go back to the Arabs and then, then they get confused. Okay, no, no, we're turtles again. And, and it's, it is. But in the case of India and, and, and Greece, now, so if I, if I was to say foreign policy, uh, okay, let me maybe give you another Indian perspective is, now, if I was to look at it from here, is that when when Indians in general, see, you have to understand how they might see it. They might look at this as a European thing now. And the European Union as such has a history of, I don't know how to say it, but chiding India a little too unnecessarily on many occasions. And what happens is, how does then, how do, how do, how does Greece, the foreign policy of Greece as such, or Greek foreign policy, divorce itself from, from that, you know, tension, if I was to say, 
like uh, let's take the example of the whole Russia Ukraine crises right now, right? India has taken a very nuanced and a very balanced stand on certain occasions because India has a history of relations with Russia. India has sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And, you know, I've been reading the commentary and I'm not saying this is Greek commentary. So, Paul, do not get me wrong. But what I'm saying is the commentary comes from the European Union. Now, it is because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are part of it and you are considered part of it. So it becomes Greek commentary. Now, in that situation, how does one divorce themselves from that commentary and say, oh, let's build on something? That's quite interesting. And maybe this is a good opportunity for me to perhaps clarify to, to some Indians exactly how the European Union works. So, of course, every state of, of each member state, uh, I can't remember how many there is, the 30 plus EU member states, they, of course, have their own foreign policies. And then supposedly there is a more collective and an umbrella European Union foreign policy. But that can't be enforced on each individual member state. So when we use the context of the Russian and the Ukrainian war, uh, there's been huge uh, problems within the European Union because one member state, Hungary as an example, has veto power. So each member state has a veto power and it just takes one of the 30 or so member states to impose a veto so that something cannot be imposed. As an example, Hungary most recently imposed a veto so that certain sanctions against Russia would not pass. Um, and this, this system has caused many, many problems within the European Union. So, for example, Greece and Cyprus, both European Union members, have been trying to impose sanctions, European Union sanctions on Turkey for many, many years uh, for, for their occupation of Cyprus, for their violation of Greek and Cypriot um, air and maritime territory and so, so forth and, and so forth. Germany vetoes any sanctions that Greece or Cyprus tries to impose on Turkey, and that's because they're protecting their own um, economic interests because they've got extremely close economic relations with Turkey um, in the tunes of tens and tens of billions of dollars. So in this way, the European Union doesn't actually exercise any real power in terms of actual policy because... Uh, individual state interests always supersede the, the, the collective EU. So although there might be many statements emanating from European Union officials, they effectively have little power to do anything at all. Now, does that forgive um, the hypocrisy that Western officials have been levelling against India's policy towards Russia? Of course not, because... As the course of the Russian war, uh, Russian war against Ukraine has been going on, we've been discovering that, in fact, it's Germany um, who imports far more uh, products from Russia than what India does, as one example. So what I would say is that the European Union um, shouldn't be taken very seriously because they don't even have collective unity themselves. They're very, very disjointed. Uh, very uh, disunited. They can never pass anything because there's always individual uh, interests that, that supersede um, the collective. Moving on from that, however, um, I think the, the criticism against India has certainly died down in regards to Russia, you know, the more and more that this hypocrisy has been exposed. Now, Greece, for its part, has been very pro-America in its policies towards Russia. 
um, we were on the path of, of building very productive relations with, with Russia. Um, we, we, we emphasized how important Russia was to Europe. However, at the first opportunity that we could to, to turn our back, backs against Russia for the sake of Ukraine, we did that. And that was definitely against Greek interests. The interesting how, uh, thing, however, is, is that uh, although that might make a country like India skeptical, you know, because Greece was so easily willing to turn its back against Russia as soon as um, geopolitical problems arose, um, the Greek government is seeking a strategic alliance with India. Um, so that's not something to be taken very, very lightly. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, some economic deal or, you know, a low-level military deal. We're talking about a very strategic um, alliance that Greece only shares with um, NATO, Cyprus, and the United Arab Emirates, um, and France, my apologies. So they're the, they're the four blocks, NATO, France, Cyprus, and the United Arab, Arab Emirates, and we hope India to be the fifth strategic alliance that, that we enter with. In this way, the, the issues of the European Union, um, my apologies, the issues of India does not concern the European Union. So we have to be very frank about that. You know, we, we know this already. They don't care about the issues of Jammu and Kashmir. They don't care about the, 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 the issues on, on the borders with China and whatnot. They don't care. And they don't have to care. That, that's my argument. They don't have to care. The hypocrisy, however, is that they demand for India to care about events in Europe and events in Ukraine and Russia. So that's that's my own personal belief. It's it's this hypocrisy that bothers me. It's not so much that Europe doesn't care about events in Kashmir, but that there's this 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 contradiction to it. Of course, I would argue that we must care about events in Kashmir because India already warned the West what would happen um, with Afghanistan in, uh, if, if we supported Pakistan after the events of, of September 11, 2001. We ignored those events and Pakistan has become a major issue for India, uh, you know, already more than what it already was. Um, Europe simply doesn't care. We don't think about how jihadism in Pakistan can have an effect on, on, on Muslims in in Europe, and that's not to, of course, I'm not saying every Muslim in in Europe is is a future or potential jihadist or, or whatnot. But we also cannot overlook that that there's definitely major issues of of Islam within Europe, and we don't identify this so much in Europe and and, and the role that Pakistan has. Greece, on the other hand, we're not so naive to this fact. Um, most of many of the of the so-called refugees that entered Greece, you know, that were supposedly from Syria um, in the last five or six, seven years, many of them actually turned out to be from Pakistan. They'll throw away the Pakistani identity cards. They'll enter Greece from Turkey, claiming to be Syrian. So we've had a huge influx of Pakistanis into Greece over the last few years, and. As a result, um, sexual assault has um, skyrocketed in Greece. Violent crimes has skyrocketed in Greece. From what is traditionally a very safe country, um, Athens was once upon a time one of the most safest capitals in Europe. That is no longer the case. Um, so we've got a greater understanding of the Pakistani threat. More importantly, Greece faces a geopolitical threat from Pakistan, which the rest of the European Union does not. So that's another uh, distinction between the rest of Europe and Greece 
and its view of, of India and events in India and trying to understand India. So what many of your viewers may not know, and perhaps even yourself, um, Kushal, is that Pakistani pilots have flown Turkish jets and violated Greek airspace um, a few times over the last three years. Uh, Turkey is facing a major issue in its air force because after the coup attempt against Erdogan a few years ago, which was orchestrated mostly from the Turkish air force, the whole Turkish air force was just stripped and and gutted. Um, and for a long time, Turkey actually needed Pakistani pilots to fly their aeroplanes, which violate Greek airspace on a, on a daily basis. So we see that um, Pakistani soldiers have practiced um, storming and invading an island, i.e. Greek islands, alongside the Turkish military. So they've conducted such trainings alongside the Turkish military. They've flown Turkish jets into Greek airspace. Their warships have um, entered Greek uh, territorial waters close to the Turkish coast. Uh, only only uh, a few weeks ago, the new Pakistani Prime Minister, Sharif, said that um, he support, that Pakistan supports Turkey in every issue, including Northern Cyprus. So we're talking about the Turkish occupation of Northern Cyprus since 1974. Um, so, you know, the Pakistanis have been very direct, very open about their relationship with Turkey. And for that reason, we've got a clear distinction between how Greece views Pakistan and, and how the rest of Europe views Pakistan. Interesting. All right, Paul, I'm, uh, I'm going to leave just one question of mine for the end. But now I'm going to take a few audience uh, live viewers. Please do. So, all right. So. Someone has asked, continuing to this whole uh, identitarian uh, thing and the immigration thing. So I'm just literally reading the question of some some of our live viewers. So someone has asked, was the rise of the ultra right in Greece due to the economic crisis, or and how does Paul see Greece's place in the EU evolve culturally, economically in the future? Oh, that's that's quite interesting. So Greece has always had a strong minority of far right or the right wing. And this was actually encouraged by the United States um, during the Cold War. Um, so my family, my, my paternal family actually fled Greece in 1969 to Australia to escape the dictatorship of Greece, which at the time was installed by the United States. Um, so we've always had this strong element of the right wing. The economic crisis, what it did was it was almost like a perfect storm because we had this economic crisis, then we also had a refugee crisis. And the refugee crisis is quite interesting. And I'll quote Turkish President Uzal, who was the president of Turkey in the early 1990s. And what he said was, long before this refugee crisis, is we don't need to invade the Greek islands. We just need to send millions of refugees and be done with it. So effectively, nearly 30 years ago, the Turkish president at the time said, we don't need to invade the Greek islands, we can just send millions and millions of refugees in. So the refugee crisis, it's not something that was organic that happened because of the Syrian war. I mean, the Syrian war happened in 2011, but the so-called refugee crisis began in 2015. It was actually Erdogan weaponizing migration against Greece for several purposes. And one of those purposes was to... Um, 
get greater support from NATO uh, with their war against the Kurds in Syria. And the other one was to, of course, weaken and Greece, uh, which was already economically uh, weak. So it was this perfect combination of Western liberal economic policies failing in Greece, coupled with this refugee crisis, which really gave the, the far right a bit of a platform to, to grow from its traditional strong roots, which is always a minority, but a strong one. So it was this perfect um, combination that, that allowed this to happen. Interestingly, Greece has not had much influence over the Union. So often we like to hear that Greece is the birthplace of Western civilization. That's what we like to hear, we're the birthplace of Western civilization. However, at the birth of civilization in Greece, or at the birth of Greek civilization, we didn't have any concept of the West. To us, the West was just this empty, barren land, just full of uh, tribes and, 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 and backward um, cultures and, and whatnot. Barbarians, effectively. Now, I don't think that is a correct way to term them, um, barbarians, but that's how we viewed them at the time. Essentially, the, what the West likes to do is claim that Greece is the birth of Western civilization in a way to compensate for their own civilizational deficiencies, uh, for not having achieved what we as Greeks achieved uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, or in some cases, thousands of years before they did themselves. Um, so we like this idea that we're the birthplace of Western civilization, but we're not. We're the birth of our own civilization, and whether we had influences from various Indo-Europeans or other um, Bronze Age civilizations who are East, of course, you know, most likely. I mean, there's, there's no arguing that fact, really. Um, today, though, we are starting to have a more bigger say in the European Union. The main reason for that, though, is not because of some cultural affinity or some new love for history in the European Union. It's more for the fact that um, Greece is a geopolitically is a, geo, a geographically important uh, location right now. You know, at, at the cusps of Southeast Europe, West Asia, and North Africa, and with Turkey becoming more and more difficult to control under Erdogan. It was more easier to control under their predecessors who, who followed US orders more closely. Um, Greece is becoming like a second choice to Turkey in a way, uh, to pressure Russia, to access uh, Eurasian um, resources um, and whatnot. So there's this kind of shift now that Greece is becoming more important, but that's just because of uh, Turkey's... Uh, Turkey has gone rogue at the moment we can say, at least under Edgar. Fair enough. The next question is, do we have any records as such uh, of, uh, let's say, Indian records of Greece or any Indian missionary records to Greece? As in, I'll give an example. When, uh, when obviously, the Greeks wrote when they came to India. Megasthenes has been known to write, uh, or, you know, a lot of material about uh, his journey in India and all of that. But has have anybody has anybody done the opposite of Indian missionaries in that sense, traveling to Greece and, and the Greeks talking about uh, is is it even mentioned anywhere or is is there are records as such? Somebody has asked this question. That's a wonderful question, and unfortunately, I cannot give a definitive answer um, because, generally speaking, the Indians were much more. Um, in, uh, they they didn't travel as much as what the Greeks did. So, so, so the Greeks in the ancient times they went as far as Britain and Scandinavia and across to India and all throughout Africa. And to my knowledge, to to my very limited knowledge, the Indians 
did not have such a tendency to, to such a great degree. I do not know if a yogi or guru did manage to go to Greece. What I will say, though, is that even in Greece, there's a great naivety, a huge naivety about how much we actually influenced um, South Asia. Uh, you know, we, we kind of think that Alexander the Great came to India, he fought a few battles, went back to Babylonia and then died, and then that was the end of that. Um, we, we actually don't realise what an influence we've had over Buddhism and, and whatnot. So on my own part, there's a great ignorance, so I'll definitely do some more research on whether Indians came to Greece. However, if we're talking about Indian influence over Greek culture, then, you know, that, that's, that's inevitable um, because these societies and these people were in many ways far more open-minded than we are today. We didn't go over and try to say your God is wrong and my God is right and follow this deity and don't follow this deity and worship this statue and don't worship this statue. We didn't have an interest in that. This was none of our business. Sometimes we amalgamated God. Sometimes we adopted some gods but we never tried to change culture or religion. So this is something that I'll definitely need to do far more research into myself, you know, whether any yogis or gurus managed to make their way to Greece. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the case of India, obviously there is a clear philosophical journey, So, which is why I, I shared Machiavelli's book uh, as a great resource. Like, I, I don't know how much do I uh, need to emphasize, like, Every Indian and Greek person should read Thomas Machiavelli's book. If they read, yes, it is 1,000 pages. So before uh, sending me any uh, abuses, yes, I know it's 1,000 pages, but it is 1,000 pages worth it. So everybody should read that book, please. Uh, all right, let me go to the next question well, right now. Before you go to the next question, an interesting case is the Pythagoras theory. So obviously Pythagoras uh, gets the plaudits for the so-called discovery of this theory, but we already know that it did exist in India hundreds of years before Pythagoras recorded his, his so-called discovery. Now, is it a case of whether there was some influence from India or was it a case of whether it was um, individually developed but just had a, 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 individually and independently developed from, from India at a later time? I, I don't know. Perhaps you may know, but... Um, you know, the, 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 there's many misconceptions on the contribution of Indian uh, philosophy, astrology, mathematics, science, and et cetera, et cetera, to, to, to today's world. Um, as I said, Pythagoras gets all the credit when actually he was a much later um, discoverer of this theory. Yeah, and, and uh, I think they've now corrected it. Uh, they do talk about the origins in India. In fact, it's very interesting where many mathematical things in that sense, in the case of Pythagoras, Pythagoras and uh, the influence, uh, the to be very honest, the the evidence of it, there are some traces of uh, Indian Indian roots going there. But uh, to say that Pythagoreans did not do anything uh, on their own is also unfair. And a lot of times what happens in maths is like even the Chinese came up with many things independently, although others had thought about it before them. So it, it, it is a very natural process in the human experience that, you know, sometimes I might also think of some concept. And then I might just, uh, I don't have, the, those people did not have Google. I do. And then I go and go, like re, uh, do a Google search and like, damn, somebody has already spoken about it. It's, it's not really surprising that people, it could well be independent. It could well be influenced. But I can sh say for sure there is a clear cut case of 
monism in Greek thought having a very huge influence from the the Shruti literature, as it's called in, in, in Indian philosophy of the Upanishads. So Upanishads are basically the, the metaphysical parts of the Vedas. Like every Veda has an Upanishad and there are multiple Upanishads. And that there is a clear link which has been shown by serious scholarship. So that I can say for sure. Now, uh, so have you dabbled in Indian and Greek, uh, in the case of Greek gods and in the, in the case of India, we call them devas. Like, um, uh, uh, has there been any interest on in that sense, like Zeus or Indra? And by the way, again, uh, the, a lot of stories have commonality. A lot of common stories exist. I can say that too. <laughs> There's no surprise that that these Indo uh, Indo European or Indo Aryan religions have have commonalities, just as we do with with the Persians and, and the Egyptians and and, and whatnot. So that's that's fairly surprising. Um, I'm not so familiar with the with the cross um, similarities. However, what I do find most interesting, though, is the Greek influence over Buddhism as one example. And for a period of time, um, the Greek mythological hero Hercules, who's uh, part god, part man, for a period of time was actually depicted as the protector of the Buddha. So we can find many statues and carvings uh, found uh, all over the Punjab, uh, whether it's in Pakistan or India today, uh, of depictions of Buddha being protected by, by Hercules or, or Heracles. So, you know, the, 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 there's many of these amalgamations, adoptions of, 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 of each other's religions and, and mythologies. And this is why I find this so unique is, is that we were far more tolerant and open-minded back then than we were today. And if I may go on another little bit of, of a rambling, um, it also do, goes back do. to the it goes again to the question of the Greek identity. And I think we can also make some comparisons with the Pakistani identity, because in this way, as I mentioned before, Ali Jinnah was highly motivated and inspired by the founding father of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk um, founded a country that did not have a strong Turkish identity, actually. It was more of a mishmash of different ethnic groups who shared either Islam or the Turkish language with each other. But ethnically, they were not Turks, um, just as a majority of people in Turkey today are not the descendants of the warriors that came marauding from Central Asia. Um, and in this way, the Turkish identity today, it's been very, very refined and very, very manufactured as well. And has been for the last 80 to 100 years, for the last 100 years, actually. Uh, the people of Turkey today, genetically speaking, and even culturally speaking, are overwhelmingly Greek, Armenian, Assyrian or other Anatolian groups um, that, that speak the Turkish language. And I find this very similar with the situation in Pakistan, where we can say that, you know, what is a Pakistani? Is it a Muslim Punjabi? Is it a Baloch? Is it a Pathan? Uh, what, what, what is a Pakistani today? And I think that question is why we also see this identity crisis in Pakistan today. Um, because of their refusal to admit that they're just effectively Muslim Punjabis or Muslims, um, uh, Muslims from Sindh, 
uh, and they completely want to ignore their their their, their roots, um, their, their their foundations. You know, even if they their roots are polytheistic and Hindu, who cares? It doesn't matter if you're Muslim today. That's how I, how it should be. So I find that much of this aggression that that we find coming from Turkey towards Greece and Pakistan towards India is because of their strong rejection of their origins and of their own roots. That that they really try to overcome it by by being as aggressive as possible. Um, so in 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 this way, the, the the question of identity, you know, we, we I said earlier that between Greece today, between those who see the Eurasian um, connection and they strongly, such as myself, who strongly want this Eurasian connection, we're not exclusively Western, we're not exclusively Eastern. We've also got this division, not between polytheists and Christians today, as it was 2,000 years ago, but between um, Christians and, and, and effectively what are Muslim Greeks who speak Turkish. Um, so this is one of the lasting legacies of, of the original Ottoman warriors that came pouring into, the, into Anatolia before they converted and Turkified the, the local population. So I, I see a lot of the Turkish-Pakistani alliance stems from this very identity crisis of rejecting who they are at the very core. And that's why they also find affinity with each other. Um, and another good reason of why India and Greece should find themselves nat naturally with each other. Because although we're Christian today, we can perfectly accept that Indians are Hindus and, and not care about that at all without wanting to evangelize. Uh, evangelize or, or convert uh, Hindus to become Christian Orthodox Christians. Yep. Uh, I, I hear you. So this is, this is a funny question. Somebody has asked, was drachma the longest running name for a currency anywhere in the world? And was it modern day Greece link, uh, Greece's link to its ancient civilization? That, that, that's, 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 that's very, very interesting. Um, it's, it's a great question, actually. So the drachma was used just, you know, Greek, Greek history is very extensive. We go from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age and we go right through the medieval periods and, and whatnot. So the drachma was not the only exclusive form of currency um, in ancient Greece. We did use it. However, we unfortunately adopted the euro dollar about 20 years ago. Um, uh, so the drachma is in discontinued today, but we did use it after we liberated ourselves from the Ottoman Turks. Mm -hmm. All right. So a couple of uh, questions, I'm going to mix them together and present them because you've answered some of them already uh, in the podcast, but I'm just reading them. So what is the Greek view on Alexander? Are there, uh, you know, like, is it been conclusively proven inside Greek archaeology that yes, there was a very specific person um like alexander and uh, <clears throat> again uh, we've already dealt with what led to the downfall of the greco-roman religions in that sense the ancient religions and um okay this question i'm not able to understand i'm going to read it in indo-greek kingdoms there were mostly indic languages sanskrit pali etc but little presence of ancient greek unlike egypt why was that do you know any any reason for that it, 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 good question again. Um, the Greek influence over Egypt is actually quite limited because the Greek language was never the dominant language of Egyptians. It was just the language of the elite who ruled over Egypt. 
Um, and in that same sense, that's that's how the the Bactrian, the Greco-Bactrian kingdoms were. It was just a small, small ruling minority elite that 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 very much ways had to adapt to to their own uh, to to their new country that that they adopted or ruled over themselves. The we can find in Afghanistan and Pakistan today many inscriptions in Greek, uh, whether it's on rocks, whether it's on coins. So these uh, archaeological evidences still do exist. Um, however, the person who asked the question is correct. I guess the building program of the Greeks that that lived in the Punjab and in Bactria was not ex- was not as extensive as the building programs that that, that happened. Um, in, uh, to the Western areas of Alexander's empire and, and the Western world, that uh, the Western Hellenic Greek-speaking world that that came to to emerge. The interest, the other interesting thing is that that I should bring up at the same time about Christianity is that um, we got to remember at this period, Judaism itself is not the same Judaism that we see today. Judaism. At the time of, of the Hellenistic period after Alexander the Great is far, far different um, to that. And, and effectively, there was many strands of Judaism, but I guess if we were to put it into two big blocks, what we had were the traditionalists or the fundamentalists, and what we had uh, called the Hellenistic Jews or the Hellenic Jews. And they were the Jews who adopted Greek culture, Greek philosophy, but still held on to onto their uh, religious beliefs. Um, but just with some Greek philosophical influence over it. And many researchers and scholars have suggested, and I think it's probably the most likely theory, is that Christianity emerged as one of these Jewish cults, a Jewish cult with significant uh, Greek philosophical influence. Um, We have to remember the Jews were also at war with themselves during the Hellenistic period, between these two competing ideologies. So it is my suggestion that the roots of Christianity perhaps is with these Hellenistic Jews who, um, who, who adopted, as I said, some Greek philosophical thought into their own, um, into their own prophecies and, to the, and into their own traditions and beliefs. All right. Before we wrap up, I have to talk about Greek food. So, Paul... <laughs> Next time somebody comes for a vacation over there, can you tell us um, who, what are the nice places we can go to and uh, tell us some food, give, give us some food recommendations. We cannot have you talk about so many things Greek and not talk about Greek food, man. <laughs> That's good. So just recently, one of your regular um, guests that you have on your show time to time, Abhishek, um, um, and I apologize, Abhishek, if you're listening, because I can't quite recall your sermon. However, he was just recently in Athens, and I was more than happy to show him around, just to a very few food places. And I think him and his uh, delegation were quite satisfied where, with where we went and ate. So quite simply, we like to have lots of vegetables with tomato and um, oil sauces, whether it's bindi, as I believe you say in Hindi, okra. Yep. Um, whether it's uh, peas or um, uh, simple dishes like this. We, we, we like to put a lot of spices and herbs into our food so we're not quite as bland as Western and Northern Europe. However, we don't use quite as much chilli 
um, as Indians do quite uh, as an example. So we use a lot of paprika, parsley, cumin, um, cloves and, and whatnot. So a lot of the things that, that um, you also use in, in India. However, what I will say is that Greek food would have been quite uninteresting if it were not for the spices of India. Um, Greek food was influenced uh, not so much from the time of Alexander the Great, but especially during the Eastern Roman period, where a lot of the spices of India and China passed through to Constantinople before they eventually made their way to Western Europe. So we were very much part of the spice trade. And because of that, I must recommend, I would say, moussaka, which is a meat dish with bindi potatoes and with a cream top layer spiced with uh, cinnamon and cumin and a few other spices. Um, another dish that's very Eastern inspired is... Um, my apologies. Uh, I would say uh, kebabs. Kebabs uh, with yogurt. That's the one to look out for. Kebabs with yogurt and moussaka. All right. And, and one last thing I, I I like to have is, have this. What's with the Greeks and the Turks fighting over falafel? Yeah, well, look, it's, it's not necessarily falafel because the Arabs and the Turks can argue about that. What we do argue about, though, is baklava. Now, baklava is neither Greek nor Turkish, but in fact, pro- most likely comes from the Iranians. Um, so I think a good compromise is just to let the Iranians have it and Greeks and Turks can end their argument over baklava. All right. That uh, I think we, we, we have finally solved a great mystery uh, at the, uh, you know, the, at the end of this discussion. <laughs> and we have, come, we have solved because, uh, you know, food can piss people off. Uh, oh, anyways, yes. Uh, uh, ask Abhijit Ayer Mitra about how people get pissed off about food and his history with food in India. <laughs> oh, he, he'll tell you a nice story when you meet him next time. Uh, so uh, we'll wrap things up over here. Before, before wrapping it up, uh, Paul, if somebody wanted to check out your work on a regular basis, uh, be on Twitter. Obviously, your Twitter handle is going to be in the description of this podcast. Is there any other any other place or any other projects that you're working on in the future that you'd like to say before we wrap it up? For now, Twitter is the best platform to, to follow me uh, and my work. And hopefully it's sooner rather than later that um, I'll be able to uh, come and see you in India and perhaps we can do a another podcast face-to-face. I, I, I look forward to that. And if you don't make it, I'm going to hold it against you. In fact, we, you know, we'll, we'll, plan, uh, we'll plan something where you and I and Abhijit will, will sit together and we'll, we'll, we'll have fun. Uh, and, you know, Abhijit, when it comes to food, he's the expert. I'm just eating. That's all I do. Abhijit <laughs> cooks, I eat. And, and that, that's the thing. So I really look forward to it, Paul. Uh, and once again, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. And uh, I hope this is not the last time and we have many more conversations like this. No problem. Thank you so much. And thanks for allowing me to ramble on and on sometimes. Have a very good night.
No, no problem at all. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap it up, once again, I want to remind all of you that in the description of the podcast, whether it's you guys watching on YouTube or listening to Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to the audio podcast, please go and check the description out. You can follow Paul on Twitter and you can also go and, you know, maybe check out the work at greekcitytimes.com. I've left both the links in the description of the podcast. As far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. If you are an audio listener, please leave a rating on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you are, or leave a nice review. If you are on YouTube, please like the the video, subscribe to the channel. You can become a member on YouTube or on Patreon, or you can buy the merch or send your donations to UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, bye-bye.